0: So, if you get to know me a little bit, you'll know my favorite type of humor isn't what Josh did this morning. Uh, uh, It's different. Uh, I'm sorry, Josh. Uh, My favorite type of humor is stuff that makes me laugh, primarily. I don't really care about you laughing, which appears Josh didn't care about you laughing either. Uh, I'm sorry, Josh. I love Josh. Uh, So... I just like to to, to kind of put as much chaos into conversations as possible and then back away and just watch it deteriorate and watch everyone be confused. So one of the things I do is uh, if you say something about your life, we're talking and you say something that triggers like a movie plot in my mind, I will then tell that movie plot as if it happened to me as long as you'll let me uh, until you're like, wait a minute, isn't that... Toy Story. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'll never acknowledge it. Okay? So, if we're talking about your favorite Christmas memory, I'll say something like, yeah, one time, this is actually probably a deep wound that I probably should go see a counselor about, but years ago when I was like eight ish, we were living up in Chicago at the time, and I'd had a big fight with my older brother, and so my mom was real mad at me, and so I actually had to sleep in the attic, and we were going to France the next day, had this big family trip, and I don't know, I like, that's like an electric storm happened and like tree lines fell. Somehow our alarms got turned off. So my parents woke up, they were freaking out and actually left and flew to France without me. And so I was home alone, Uh, right? And I'll drop the movie title and people are like, really? So I say all that because if you don't know me and if you haven't seen the movie, my words are just going to confuse you. You're not going to understand why I'm saying these random things. You're not going to understand what's my actual point, which is a joke, right? Similarly, when we look at our passage today, if you just look at the words and you don't know who it is that's talking, you don't know what's been said before in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't know what's been said before in all the Old Testament, and you don't know what's going to be said after in the New Testament, you just look at the words, you're going to be very, very, very confused and perhaps very, very, very sad slash anxious, okay? So... We're going to look at this today as we enter into a new section in the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at the Beatitudes, what are the blessed realities of those in the kingdom. Tim last week talked about uh, the distinctiveness of God's people versus the rest of the world. And today we're going to enter into a new section that's going to carry us through the rest of chapter 5, which is Jesus and his coming kingdom and how that relates to the law how that relates to everything that has come beforehand, basically all of the Old Testament. And we're gonna see actually the foundational teaching today in these three verses, these four verses, and then the rest of the chapter, the next few weeks, we're gonna look at examples of it. How does Jesus coming and his kingdom coming change our anger and our lust and things like that and, and how we use our oaths and things like that. And so I say all that to say, this is one of those texts that if your eyes, you just have tunnel vision, you're going to be very, very confused, and you're actually going to misunderstand what Jesus is saying in the same way that you understand would misunderstand, I'm not talking about a past trauma at age nine in Chicago. I'm just telling a joke, right? We're trying to have fun here. So we're going to look at this first kind of foundational teaching today. Many commentators say this isn't just the key to understanding the rest of the chapter. This The verses we're going to look at today are the key to understanding the whole sermon and really the key to understanding Jesus' entire ministry, and really to understanding the entire Bible. So to say it a different way, this is the most important sermon you'll ever hear in your entire life, so tune in. That might be true, that's not true, Uh, but it is important. So we're gonna look at three things today as we walk through these passages. Number one, again, remember the context. How does Jesus in his kingdom, everything we've been talking about up till now, relate to the law, the Old Testament? Number one, The fulfiller of the law. We're going to see who is the fulfiller of the law. Number two, the obeyers of the law. And number three, the crushed by the law. The fulfiller of the law, the obeyers of the law, and then lastly, the crushed by the law. So let's jump into that first section the fulfiller of the law. Look at verse 17. Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the first thing we need to ask is, what does Jesus mean by law and the prophets? What is he talking about? What does he mean by law and the prophets? Because as we'll see, and you'll see all over the New Testament, law, prophets, things like that will be used as shorthand, sometimes for just the first five books Of the Bible, five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, sometimes literally the 613 commandments within the law, the prophets will sometimes be used as just the prophetic literature, sometimes everything else. Here, Jesus simply means everything that has come before him. The scriptures, the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, what they would just call the scriptures, everything that's been written up to that point, okay? So law, again, shorthand almost always for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the the first five books of Moses, and then the prophets often used as the rest, shorthand for the rest. Let me give you an example. So it's not just prophetic literature, not just Jeremiah, not just Isaiah. Look at this example in Matthew 13. Uh, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, Matthew says, to the prophet. And then he quotes... Not uh, Ezekiel, not Jeremiah. He quotes Psalm 78. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been since the foundation of the world. So see that Matthew uses the prophet to basically mean everything else in the Old Testament. So that's what Jesus means here. Quite simply, all the scriptures that have come before me, all the scriptures, the Old Testament, as, as we would call it. So the first thing he's saying is, I have not come to abolish to do away with, to wipe away and uh, unhitch us from, if you will. I have not come to do that. Why does he need to say that? Why does he need to make that clarifier to a bunch of people that would have lived by the Scriptures? Why does he need to say that? Again, remember what we've been talking about the entire book of Matthew, from Matthew 1 up to this point. What's the great context of the Gospel of Matthew? The coming of the kingdom, namely the king of the kingdom. When the king shows up, his kingdom shows up. We saw John the Baptist heralding, "Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand." He's coming, and then we see Jesus show up and starting his ministry, preaching what the kingdom. And as he's going, he's gaining a huge following—not just these twelve guys, but massive crowds. We, we we looked at Matthew four a couple months or a couple weeks ago. Look at this. Jesus, he went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the peoples. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, the entire region, and they brought to him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those uh, oppressed by demons and having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Matthew just saying everywhere, everywhere Jesus goes, it's not just, oh, there's that nice rabbi that some people are liking. It's, where's all our sick? He's here. Let's, let's bring them all to him. There's a massive crowd following him. His fame is spreading. And so you would expect... As Jesus' fame is growing and growing and growing, the anticipation of what he's here to do is also growing and growing and growing. We'll see him clarify his mission over and over and over again all throughout Matthew. I'm not here to overthrow Rome, I'm here to overthrow a greater enemy. He's going to have to teach Peter in a couple chapters. And here, here's what he's clarifying I'm not here to overthrow the old. It's not party time. It's not like, oh, good, all the rules are gone because the new kingdom is here. I'm not here to abolish or to overthrow the old. I have, in fact, look at the rest of the verse, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. They've all been pointing to me. I'm not wiping them away. In fact, they are a giant arrow pointing to me. I'm here to fulfill them. Literally, I'm here to bring about why they were written, The ultimate purpose for why they were written is why I'm here. He's the true teacher of the law. I'm here to show their true meaning. We'll see over the next few few weeks, Jesus say things like this. You've heard it said, but I say. Not giving a new teaching, but saying here is what the meaning, the the, the purpose behind the Old Testament is. And he's going to clarify. It's not just that you're not supposed to kill people. God's after the hatred in your heart. It's not just that you're not supposed to break the rule of adultery. God's after the lust in your heart. He's there to show its true meaning. Again, it's all been pointing to him. He is the true teacher. I'm here to show its true meaning. I'm not here to abolish it. In fact, it's all pointing to me. This kingdom isn't overthrowing it. It's what's been expected, right? We, we looked at uh, a couple times, I've used the example that B.B. B. Warfield, the old Princeton scholar gave where he says that the Old Testament is a room filled with treasures, but it's dimly lit. And Matthew here, or Jesus, when he shows up, is turning on the lights and saying, all these things are me. All these things are my kingdom. It's what we've been waiting for this whole time. We'll see very explicit statements where Jesus says uh, the exact thing. At the end of Luke 24, Jesus, after his death and resurrection, is talking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says this, and he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, as they, they don't really know what's going on, they're wrestling with this. He says, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So he's pointing backwards. All that they were pointing to. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses, the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I would like Luke to elaborate there. Unfortunately, that's all he gives. Jesus is just walking and says, by the way, let me just walk through Genesis to Malachi and show you how it's all pointing to me. It's all pointing to me. He says to the Pharisees in uh, John 5, the Pharisees who would have had the scriptures memorized, would have known every dot, every iota, as Jesus is about to say, they would have known each and every mark. Jesus says this to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. You've got every comma memorized and you miss what it's all about. They're all pointing To me, So, Jesus is saying, I'm not here to overthrow. In fact, I'm the great conclusion of the Old Testament. Over and over again, we see he is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the great seed in Genesis 3.15 that's promised that will crush the head of the serpent. He's the ultimate blessing of Abraham. Abraham promised land, a people, and one day all the nations will be blessed through him. Matthew traces the line back. Here's the ultimate blessing. The ultimate son of Abraham. He's the ultimate blessing of Abraham. He's the ultimate promised son of David, the king who's going to reign forever over God's people. He's God's true son. He's the true Adam who doesn't listen to the lies of the serpent in the garden, but rather trusts God in the garden. He's the true Israel. Remember, he's called out of Egypt, but what does he do in the wilderness? Does he fall away? Does he rebel? Does he worship idols? No, he conquers in the wilderness. He's the only one who's ever truly obeyed everywhere where Israel failed. He's the true sacrificial lamb whose blood doesn't just push back judgment, it pays for it once and for all. He's the true scapegoat whose head all the sins of the people are put on and he is sent out into the wilderness. He's forsaken so that the people of God might be brought in. He's the true priest who mediates between God and his people. He's the true prophet who comes and declares God's law. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, I say, because he is the Lord. He's the true uh, temple where heaven and earth meet in his very person. He's the true light of the world. As there's a lampstand in the temple, his light shines everywhere. All who come to him might no longer walk in darkness. He's the true bread of life. Everyone who comes to him will be nourished. He's the true personified wisdom of the Proverbs, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.13. He became wisdom to us from God. He's the true bridegroom of the Song of Songs who truly presents his bride cleansed. In her very splendor, on and on we could go. He's the true tree of life, who gives eternal life. Who all are who all come to Him for nourishment. He's the man of Daniel seven, who will inherit the kingdom from the ancient of days. He's the true suffering servant of Isaiah fifty-three, who would be bruised for our transgressions and be crushed for our iniquities, and by whose stripes we would be healed. Everything we see ultimately points to Him. It was the shadow; He is the substance. He is not coming to abolish, to do away with, or to overturn the old. He is the great crescendo of everything that has come up to him. In fact, uh, Irenaeus, who's the, really the church's first biblical scholar, second century uh, church father, said there's, there's a test you can give. As heresy is beginning to creep up into the church, people pointing people away from truth, he said there's one test to show uh, if you're interpreting the Bible like a Christian or like a heretic. And his test was this, does your interpretation ultimately get to Jesus? And he gave this picture and he said, each each biblical passage is like a little piece of glass in this beautiful stained glass window in in this mosaic. And when you zoom out, Christians see a picture of a king. They see the picture of Jesus. Heretics, the way they arrange it, you zoom out and it's this picture of a dog or a fox, and an ugly one at that, he says, to really stick it to them. Does your interpretation ultimately get to Jesus? Because Jesus is going to say over and over and over and over again, if you haven't gotten to me, O Pharisees, you've missed what all the scriptures are about. I'm not here to overturn them. I'm here to fulfill them. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century uh, Baptist preacher who's called the Prince of Preachers, gave an argument of why Why should you preach Jesus in every single sermon, O pastors? Why should Jesus show up even if you're preaching in Leviticus or Numbers, right? Even if he's not in the actual text, why should you get there? Here's what he said. Preach Jesus, brethren, always and everywhere. And every time you preach, be sure to have much of Jesus Christ in your sermon. You remember the story of the old minister who had heard a sermon by a young man. So he's he's telling a story now. It's very Inception. We got a story within a quote. You remember the old story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man. And when he was asked by the preacher, by the young man, what he thought uh, of the sermon, he was rather slow to answer. But at last he said, I must tell you, I did not like it at all. There was no Christ in your sermon. No, said the young man. But I did not see Christ in the text, meaning the passage that he preached. Oh, said the old minister, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London. And whenever I get hold of a text, I say to myself, where is the road from here to Jesus Christ? And I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you are preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. The old man replied, then I will go over the hedge and the ditch and I will get to him. Spurgeon speaking again, so you must do, brethren. We must have Christ in all of our sermons. Jesus saying, I am the ultimate answer to every little passage you could break down. And if you don't ultimately get to me, I don't care if you're in the census in numbers, if you don't ultimately get to me, you haven't ultimately got to the true meaning." Of the scriptures. And in fact, if you read a lot of the, the, the early church fathers, their commentaries, if you read Irenaeus breaking down a passage, they, they actually look for Jesus under every rock and they butcher a lot of passages. It's really funny to read. Uh, it's like this blade of grass is how Jesus was, you know, the palms in Hosanna. They're just really trying to make connections. And we typically mock them for their horrible exegesis, right? Us good Protestants, we use the historical grammatical method. And I think if they could hear our mocking, they would say, have your mocking, I'm getting to the one that it's all about. I may make mistakes along the way, but I'm getting to the one that it all points to. So here, don't miss this, here Jesus is giving us the key to unlocking this confusing passage, unlocking the rest of the sermon, unlocking his ministry, and unlocking your entire Bible. It is all pointing to him. He is its fulfillment. It is a story about him. Here is the difference between the Bible on your shelf being a book of ethics that you must moralistically follow and the story, the revelation of the living God who sent his son. A story about his ultimate exaltation. A story that's not ultimately about us, but about him and how we might come to him and how we might fall at his feet And be loved by him. So he has not come to do away with the old. He has not come to abolish the scriptures. He's what the scriptures have been pointing to. So here he's clarifying his mission for us. And next he's going to look at, now that we know he's the fulfiller, he's the one we've been waiting for, he's going to zoom in a little bit on the law itself, the Old Testament itself, and say, so if, if he is the fulfillment, How are his followers, those listening and us now listening 2,000 years later, how are we meant to relate to the law? If he's not doing away with it, if it's not no rules party time, how are we supposed to relate to the law now that we know our rabbi? The one we're following is its fulfiller. And the next thing he's going to show is the obeyers of the law. The obeyers of the law. Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is accomplished. So he's saying, not only am I not here to abolish the scriptures, not even the smallest part of the scriptures. An iota is the smallest letter in Greek, a dot is he's literally saying the smallest marks you could make. It's like saying an I or a comma. Not even a comma is going to pass away until all is accomplished. He's essentially just re-quoting Isaiah here. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Not even the smallest piece will pass away. Notice the end of that little verse. Until all is accomplished. What's he getting at there? Until all is accomplished. Again, remember the context. Jesus here is giving the true meaning of the scriptures. He's here to show the purpose of the scriptures. And the first thing he's going to show here is calling us back again to the to the idea that Isaiah puts forth of when God speaks, there's purpose behind his words. God doesn't just spew a bunch of random laws cuz he likes making us jump through hoops. There is purpose behind every word that comes out of God's mouth. Isaiah 55 God is not an abstract floating ball of attributes just saying a bunch of random stuff we need to follow because that's the religion he chose. Every word out of your living God's mouth has purpose behind it. And so here, Jesus is saying, again, there's purpose behind every word. And as we know from the last verse, that ultimately points to me. I'm here to accomplish that purpose. Nothing's passing away until I accomplish it, which we know he will do right now in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. He's accomplishing what the scriptures have been pointing forward to and ultimately in his second coming. So we're still in this in-between time. He's already accomplishing it in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and will ultimately accomplish when he returns and makes all things new. And sin will be no more, and tears will be no more, and the dwelling place of God will be with Man. So the first thing he's saying is scriptures aren't passing away. They are still a authority over your life, right? They're all pointing to me. And therefore, look at verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Since I'm not overturning it, since it's not passing away, And it remains a foundation underneath your feet. There's kind of a play on words here in Greek. He's essentially saying, if you make the scriptures little, you're little. And you teach others to make them little, you're little. But if you make them much, you're much. Or to say it another way, my followers are to have the same view of the scriptures that I have as the purposeful word of the living God. One of the marks of God's people from the very beginning is a longing and a love for God's word. Look at Deuteronomy 6, this famous passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently. See, be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your forehead and they shall be on the frontlets of your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Psalm 1, first two verses we have in the entire book of Psalms are this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, not his begrudging obedience, his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That is the mark of the people of God all throughout the Scriptures, and the coming of the King doesn't change that, it furthers it. We now know, unlike Israel, the lights have been turned on. We see the treasures. We know the one that it's all been pointing to. We know the fulfiller. And so we have the same longing and love for his word. Go read the book of Acts and watch Peter in his sermons. What does he use to evangelize? Does he say, we just hung out with Jesus for three years and he told us all this stuff, so come follow him? No, constantly Quoting what? The scriptures. Constantly quoting the foundation beneath his feet, the Old Testament. Look at Paul constantly pointing back. Paul who could have said, yeah, my conversion was Jesus knocking me off my horse. And so he told me a bunch of stuff. Or I was called up into the third heaven, whatever that is. And he told me a bunch of stuff. Never says that. He always says, thus says Isaiah. He's always pointing back to the scriptures. You see, the coming of this king doesn't change our Love and our longing for the law doesn't unhitch us from the Old Testament. Rather, we are a people who have the same view of the Scriptures that the eternal Son does. Our delight is in the Scriptures. Our delight is on the law of the Lord. On it, we meditate day and night. Now, here's the big clarifier of all the question marks happening. Because some of you might be thinking, okay, that's great, but we had bacon together a few days ago. And I'm pretty sure that breaks Leviticus 11, right? So what's happening? Are we just forgetting that one because we figured out bacon tasted good and maybe Israel didn't know that back then? Or right now I'm scanning the room and how many are wearing uh, two sets of cloths breaking Leviticus 19? One two, everyone, okay? So what's happening, right? We're clearly not following some of the Old Testament law. Are we the least? What's happening here? Paul will say some very strong things in Galatians when he says things like, if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no value to you. That seems like the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. So what's, what's happening? What's happening? Are we, are we just all the least and we just like it better this way because it's easier to kind of exist? What's going on here? And here is where, if you don't know me, you won't get my jokes, if you don't know who it is that's talking, if you don't know the scriptures, if you don't know what Jesus has come here to do, you're going to completely misunderstand this because Jesus has come to fulfill. He's come to accomplish what the law is pointing to. He's not here to abolish it, but rather fulfill it. And in his fulfilling, our relationship to it, to the law, to the scriptures, changes. It doesn't go away, but our relationship to it changes. Let me give you an example Uh, You are under the law of gravity. So am I. I could jump down here, but it would take a long time to get back up. I just, trust me, just drop a pin underneath your seat, and you'll see we're all under the law of gravity, right? Jump off a roof. I don't recommend it, uh, but you'll fall. You are under the law of gravity. Now, there's one way for you to have your relationship to the law of gravity changed, and it's to be in an airplane. And it's, or a hot air balloon, or, you know, you get what I'm saying. Don't, well, no, there's a bunch of flying things. Just quit being nitpicky, right? Be in an airplane and you can walk around, you can go to the bathroom, you're great, and you're 30,000 feet in the air. Now, if you're outside of that airplane, you will plummet to your death, right? Now, so in an airplane, you're still under the law of gravity. The law of gravity didn't just magically go away, but your relationship to it has changed. Similarly, Jesus showing up doesn't change God's demand for atonement. In Israel, they've sinned and they can't approach a holy God, so what do they need to do to push back the judgment? They take a lamb and they kill it, and it dies in their place, and now their sins can be pushed back. The the judgment for their sin can be pushed back. You and I don't walk in here with our own little lamb or goat. Why? Because we approach the living God because the eternal lamb has been sacrificed. The law has not been overturned, but now we approach our holy God through the blood of his son. You see that. It's not as if God, God's just like, nah, I don't really care about sin anymore because Jesus, no, Jesus has come to fulfill what the, the animal sacrificial system was only a shadow of. He's the substance. You see that, okay? So, this is not meant to be, Jesus here is not meaning to explain everything about how Christians relate to the law. In fact, this is real complex. We actually have a, a, a resource that Jeff wrote a while ago, a couple years ago, that I have, should be on the slides, called Christian Responsibility in the Mosaic Law. I would encourage you to go read that because it's actually getting into it in a lot more depth than we can do in this sermon. But this is a real complex subject. In fact, the New Testament church is going to be working this out. Paul is having to write uh, Galatians and Romans really laying this out. They're going to have to have a whole council in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, to ask the question, is circumcision required for salvation? Is circumcision demanded in the Old Testament law now required for salvation that Christ has come? They're going to say, no, no. And Paul in Romans and Galatians is gonna say, no, Peter's gonna to have to be, see this vision in Acts 10 where he sees all this unclean food and God says, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no way, Lord, I'm following your law. I would never eat anything that's unclean. And God says, don't call what I've made clean, unclean. So it takes even Peter a couple chapters to start to get, you know, how, how, how has our relationship to the law changed? Even in church history, there's been long debates about how do we relate to the law. Luther and Calvin even have some kind of different ideas. Uh, what I'm going to say now is don't miss the forest for the trees. Jesus isn't trying to un- or unravel all of these questions here. He's simply making the general statement, the law's not passing away. It's pointing to me. I'm its fulfillment. And therefore, those who follow me love the scriptures and teach others to do the same. And in doing this, Jesus here is saying, my followers, quite simply, Love, obedience, and teaching others. In fact, that's actually what displays love for me. Look at John 14, 15. If you love me, you will raise your hands high in worship. You will feel all the fluttery butterfly feelings. No, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus has has no split between obedience and love bursting out of your heart. And in fact, Jesus calling you to obey is an opportunity to display love and an invitation to joy. Look at John 15, one chapter later. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What's Jesus's motivation? Is it just, you know, we're Christians and the world has a lot of fun and we have none of it because we got to go to heaven at the end of the day? Is it just blanket moralism? What's his motivation here for calls to obedience and calls to love the scriptures and obey his commandments? Joy, your joy. Now, why is this so disconnected in our mind? I think, I know, we have a skewed view Of obedience because of the sin that we're actually born into, our starting point. Everyone here lives on the other side of Genesis 3. And even though Genesis 1 and 2 is this beautiful picture of God creating everything, creating man and woman, inviting them into this glorious creation to go and take dominion, he says, there's one tree. You can eat of all of them except this one. And in doing that, again, he's giving them an opportunity to show that they love him and inviting them to joy. You don't have to be God Trust me to be God. You just have the joy of trusting. And then Genesis 3 comes along, and what is the lie that they're told? God doesn't really have your good in the back of his mind when he's saying this. In fact, he knows goodness is in that forbidden fruit, and he wants to keep you from it. He knows you'll be like him, and you'll know everything. What's the devil doing in whispering that lie? Obedience, commands are to keep you from good stuff, from fun stuff, from joy. And Adam and Eve believe that lie, and they eat of it. And every one of us, their children, are born into this world believing that lie. We've got a billion parents in here. Every one of your kids thinks your law, clean up your toys or whatever, is what? There's fun stuff, and I like bedtime, so clean up your toys because I like to just lay down laws to make your life more miserable. Why do kids go crazy when they go to college? The shackles are off. It's been 18 years of my parents trying to keep me from fun stuff. They're not here anymore, and I'm going to dive straight in, right? Even rule-following kids do it because they think they need to earn their parents' love. They're not going to love me unless I follow these things. That is how we all view commands. That is how we all view God's commands, And the only way to undo that false way of thinking is to go back and undo the lie of Genesis 3, to see the reality that your God, who doesn't need anything from man, who is perfectly, eternally content in the happy land of the Trinity, but out of the overflowing heart of love creates paradise, scoops up dirt, molds you from it, breathes life into you and says, enjoy. Take dominion and trust me. The weight of the world can be on my shoulders. You just be free to trust me. That character needs to be restored in your mind. In fact, the character of that God, even when we disobey, even when we listen to the lie of Genesis 3 says, don't worry, I'll send one who won't disobey, who will perfectly not touch the tree his whole life, and his obedience can be given to you so that you can come back into my joy. You see that, his commandments to you are an invitation into life, into his joy, into eternal fellowship with him. Forget the lie of Genesis three. Don't let your fear of legalism keep you from the joy of obedience. In the beauty of his scriptures, and the beauty of his law, the man of Psalm 1 who delights in the law of the Lord is not lying because he thinks he needs to put that in the scriptures because that'll make him seem really pious. He's tasted reality. I have one place where I find eternal delight. It's in the law of the Lord. I meditated on it day and night, not just because I'm trying to be a good Christian, but because I find life there. He's overturned the lie of Genesis 3. There's no joy with the scoffers, There's no joy in the counsel of the wicked. And similarly, when you teach others, not just when you live that way, when you teach others, love his commandments, obey his commandments, you are inviting them to joy. Matthew 28, the very last passage in this gospel. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, verse 20 teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. Do you rightly see the character of your God giving commands, beckoning you to joy? And here's the key. You can only truly love his law, truly love his commandments, if you see them in light of Verse 17, if you see them in light of the fulfiller of the law, do you know the fulfiller of the law who says, obey not because you need to earn something, but because I've already earned it for you. You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2.10, what comes all before this, this glorious picture in Ephesians 2, dead nor trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in mercy by grace saved us. You obey, not like the legalistic kid who thinks he needs to earn his parents' love, but because your eternal father's love has already been poured out on you, because you live in light of the fulfiller of the law. Dive into that ocean of joy and love the law of the Lord. That's the second thing. Fulfiller of the law, the obeyers of the law, and then lastly, we see the crushed by the law. Here's another example of, you gotta know me to get my jokes. Okay, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. I doubt that's on any of your walls at home. Okay? Mardell doesn't sell that verse on picture frames. It doesn't, it's not a very good seller. Okay, the Pharisees Again, would have had the scriptures memorized, would have tithed like you wouldn't believe. They prayed, they fasted very publicly. In everybody's minds, they would have been a picture of obedience, of outward obedience. In our day, we know it's Jesus' main enemy, and so we're constantly like, Pharisees, boo, that's bad. To his listeners, those are your heroes. Those are the people, in your mind, keeping God's law seemingly perfectly, And so Jesus here, to all of his hearers, that would have been a terrifying, impossible statement. He would have just said something similar to, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is what's Peter's response. Well, then who can be saved? It's these impossible statements, right? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to keep the law that way, if you want to go down the path of outward behavior, here's your standard perfection. And in fact, at the end of this chapter, he's going to just go ahead and remove all doubt and say, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. You want to go the route of outward works? Don't make one misstep. And by the way, you're born with a misstep, so sorry. Right? Even if you're like, oh, I'm 21 and I hadn't sinned up till now, you were born into it, so sorry to remove all of those 21 years of struggle. Right? If you want to go the route of behavior, the standard is perfection. And here's where the law becomes a crushing, crushing law. What Jesus is getting at here is it is impossible to enter the kingdom that way. It is impossible to enter the kingdom through the route of outward behavior. In fact, the entire point of the law is to crush you, to show you very, very, very clearly you can't try your best, you'll fall short. It's meant to bring you to the end of yourself, realizing I'm stumbling over and over and over and over again and crush you. John Stott, the great 20th century preacher, says this, the function of the law is not to bestow salvation, but to convince men of their need of it. It's to bring you to that place where you say, I can't measure up. There's a standard that's too high for me They mean. I've already failed, and I've tried my best again and again, and I keep failing. I need help. Uh, so, those of you who know me, maybe not well enough to get my jokes, but know something about me, know that I played football briefly in college. Uh, and when I played football in high school, I was fairly good. I was All State. Now, before you get impressed, all that means for a running back at Liberty Christian School means compared to the other five foot seven, khaki pant wearing white kids, I was among the best, okay? Then you go to college. And every single person on your team was the best at their high school. And here's what happens. You realize you're not that great. You shrink as you hit a higher standard. You don't do what Michael Jordan did and just play over and over until you grow nine inches and then actually get good at your sport, right? You just shrink and you realize, oh, I'm nowhere near as good as I thought I was. I was just around a bunch of scrubs, right? And so I was just the best of the not good players. And then I'm with good players now. And so I realize where I rank, okay? That's what the law is meant to do. The standard of perfection that is meant to crush you. Romans 3, Paul says this, for by works of the law, no human, or for the, sorry, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. When you meet a higher standard, the first thing that flies in your mind is your inability to save yourself. That's the crushing of the law. Here's what Jesus is not saying. Go outperform the Pharisees. In fact, the rest of this chapter, he's gonna show how the true meaning of the law actually exposes the Pharisees' hypocrisy. He's gonna call them whitewashed tombs whose outward works look great, but inside they're just rotting dead bones. Jesus is not calling them good and saying, go out, work them. Rather, he's showing you a high standard that is meant to crush you. He's meaning here that followers of me, followers of the law fulfiller need to come to the end of themselves and realize there's no righteousness here. I've got to look somewhere else for my righteousness. I've got to find it somewhere else. And this is actually step one Beginning to understand the gospel. We're all born into sin, blind, thinking that we're not that bad, and that we can actually earn salvation. And so the first step of the gospel is this crushing weight of the unmeetable law. Uh, Isaiah 6, I love this passage, actually gives us kind of a summary of this. Isaiah, who's this great prophet, right? One of the main figures in the Old Testament and living in a really, really bad day, kind of like me, playing with a bunch of scrubs. So he would have felt great about himself. But one day he encounters the living God. And look what happens. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah speaking, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, two they two they covered their face, two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Look at verse 5. And I said, this great prophet who's going to make all these prophecies that are going to be real famous, we're going to quote them all the time. I said, woe is me for I am lost and I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What does he immediately realize when he encounters the infinitely holy God? Unclean. I fall short. I shouldn't be here. Anticipation of death. All these things that you would think as you see this infinitely high standard. And then look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and Having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken from the tongs of the altar, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. So you get like a mini picture of the gospel there. Only when he realizes how unclean he is, is he ready for atonement. In fact, all throughout the First Great Awakening, as George Whitefield and all these guys are preaching, they looked for two signs of the working of the Holy Spirit. The first was misery. They're preaching, how do I know if the Spirit's working? Who is weeping? Who can't get off the floor? Who is being crushed? As they realize there's no righteousness here. And the second sign, comfort, joy. Why? Because they found righteousness just not in themselves. Step one of the gospel is realizing you need it. There's nothing here, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's nothing here that I should look for. When I look here, I'm crushed. I need to look somewhere else. And that's where you actually are ushered. Martin Luther said the law is an usher that leads its way to grace. Because when you're crushed, when you realize that all you can offer is filthy rags, then your eyes can be turned back to the fulfiller, to the only one whose righteousness does actually exceed that of the Pharisees. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Only when you're crushed can your eyes be lifted up and can you trust in someone else, someone with a capital S, the only one you're allowed to actually trust in. So question for you, Have you been crushed? Has the law stomped out 100% of any trust you would ever put here? Not 99, not 99.9. Has it completely crushed you? I dare not trust here. I've got to look somewhere else. And if not, let it. Let the law crush you and turn you to the only righteous one whose righteousness does actually exceed that of the Pharisees. The law is a glorious crusher. It's the divine canary in the eternal coal mine, right? It's the great warning sign saying, don't go this way. You will never make it this way. There's only death this way. You need to find the only one who measures up. Matthew 7, we'll look at this in a few weeks, probably the most terrifying passage in all the scriptures. There are these people that come before Jesus, calling him Lord, and they present all their righteousness. I cast out demons. I healed many in your name. I did all these great works in your name. And Jesus says to them, I don't know you. You were looking here. You never looked there. Depart from me. Do you know the law fulfiller? Has the law crushed you and made you find the one who actually says, I have fulfilled it? Do you know the Romans 8 reality that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do by sending his son? And now nothing can separate you from his love. Let the law crush you. It is a glorious thing that points you to joy. Philippians 3, Paul gives us a picture. This is so hard to to convince us of because we're so prone to trust in our own righteousness. And so Paul gives a personal example who is the Pharisee of the Pharisees of the difference between trusting in your own righteousness, trusting in the law versus finding the only righteous one. Here's what he says. Philippians 3, 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about people who say, you need to keep all this Old Testament law by your own obedience. You need to be Circumcised in order for salvation. Again, all these things he's facing. Verse three: For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks uh, he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless, right? If there's anybody whose righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, Paul's saying, I was a pretty good candidate. And look what he says in verse 7. But, but whatever, I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as, as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Look at this. Having a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, not the path of obedience, outward obedience, but that which comes from, Through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So there it is, very plainly. We kind of took this in reverse order. We see the fulfiller first. We see our call to obedience, and then we see our crushedness last. Kind of reverse those orders. Be crushed. Look to the fulfiller, and then walk in the joy of obedience, knowing that he has already paid your debt, And he's already lived your perfect life. When the Father looks at you, if you're in Christ, he sees your life as if you lived the life he lived. As if you defeated the devil in the wilderness. As if you resisted every temptation. As if you defeated the temptation to trust in your own will and not his in the garden. Because he has taken all of your penalty and he's given you all of his life, you can say, In him, I fulfilled the law. I'm in the airplane. There's one whom I trust in. He's the only one whose righteousness actually exceeds that of the Pharisees. He's the only one who's actually perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And he is the one who was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. He was strapped to the chair and given lethal injection for our capital crime. Also... All so that we could have his reward, the reward of his obedience, the the joy of knowing his father. He takes your filthy rags and he puts them on himself. And he takes his righteous robes and he puts them on you. Have my obedience, I'll take your debt. The wrath that you and I owe was poured out on him so that the eternal love of the father could be poured out on us. So, be crushed look to the fulfiller, and walk in obedience because he has brought you to the Father. A certain Scottish pastor was writing to a church member, and he says this. God makes that covenant with you when he brings you to lay hold of Jesus as your surety, your curse-bearing, law-fulfilling surety. Then you are brought into the bond of the everlasting covenant, and all its blessings are yours, pardon, righteousness, consolation, grace upon grace, life, love, a spirit of supplication. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Pray that you be made like Caleb, who had another spirit, and follow the Lord fully. Follow Christ all the day. He is the continual burnt offering in whom you may have peace. He is the rock that follows you, from whom you may have constant and infinite supplies. Give yourself wholly away to him. You are safe in no other keeping but that of the everlasting arms of Jehovah Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we know that even those who have been brought to your son and lay hold of him, we are so quick to run back to our old ways. Of trusting in ourselves. There's a reason why the New Testament continually beckons us to look back to the gospel that we have believed and we trust in, to not to run back to our own ways of trying to earn our way before you, to not run back to the old ways of believing the lie of Genesis 3, that you are a far-off, angry, frustrated creator with your arms crossed waiting for us to just get it together rather than the reality that you are a loving father who knew We couldn't get it together, and so sent your son to live perfectly for us. And so I pray that you would be a loving father and be patient with us and show compassion to us and open our eyes to the glorious realities of the gospel that you brought us to, that we might not return back to the ridiculous false pleasures of the world, but rather would trust in you and would trust in joy and would love your word how quick we are to be so infatuated by meaningless things that will fade away, fill our heart with love for you because we see that you have poured out your love for us that we might actually be able to say we love because we know you first loved us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that while we were far off, not looking for you, you sent your son to redeem us as a good shepherd, you came after us. And so I pray that you would change our hearts Lord, that we might behold your glory and love you more every day and actually walk, actually experience just a taste of what will one day be the eternal reality for us, which is everlasting joy staring in the face of your Son. We pray in his holy name. Amen.